All right, thank you, Jake and team, for leading us this morning. If you have a Bible, take it out. Find John chapter 12. We're going to press on in our study of the Gospel of John this morning. Next week, we will come to the end of John 12. And in the Gospel of John, the end of John 12, the beginning of John 13 is a good place to take a break. And so next week, we'll come to the end of John 12. We'll take a short break. Over the summer months, we're going to go through a series in 1 John. So we're going to stick with John, but we're going to move from the Gospel of John to the book of 1 John. We're going to walk through that short book. Uh, We're going to see that many of the themes, many of the ideas between 1 John and the Gospel of John are very similar. And so that's what's coming up in just a few weeks. Towards the end of the summer, we're going to spend several weeks talking about the seven deadly sins. Uh, That's not a biblical list, at least as those are grouped together, uh, but they are all sins mentioned and talked about in the Bible, and we're going to talk about those sins and how we fight them and how Jesus gives us hope uh, in spite of the fact that we're guilty of those sins. And then in October, we're going to pick right back up where we left off. We're leaving off at the end of John 12. We're going to pick up right at the beginning of John 13. So our passage this morning is John 12, verse 27, down to the middle of verse 36, and I'll just start with a few basic thoughts that will sort of lay, lay the, the context out for everyone as we begin. Our passage, John 12, 27 to 36, is connected to John 12, verse 20 to 26. That's the passage that we looked at last week. These two passages are connected. Both of them, both of these stories took place the Monday after Palm Sunday. And if you were here last week or you joined us online last week, you'll remember after the triumphal entry, a group of Greeks came to see Jesus. Jesus understood their coming as a sign that his hour had come. And so this group of Greek people came to Philip. They said to Philip, we want to see Jesus. Philip, rather than going straight to Jesus, went to Andrew. Andrew and Philip together went with this request to Jesus. And the strangest part of the story is that we never find out if Jesus actually met with this this group of people. Did he ever talk with these folks? John doesn't tell us. What he does tell us is that when the request came, Jesus understood it somehow to be a sign or a signal that his hour had come. And up to this point in John, Jesus has been saying, my hour has not yet come. It's not my time. This is not my hour. This is not my time. And then finally, he says, my hour has come. Last week, we talked about the Son of Man, and that's part of our passage this week. Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man. Those listening understood that Jesus was using this as a messianic title, but they were confused about the actual mission of the Messiah. They understand sort of what Jesus is saying. In calling himself the Son of Man, he's referring to Daniel 7, this messianic figure who will come and have dominion and power and share this throne. They understood some of what Jesus was saying. They're struggling to connect the dots with the idea that Jesus is going to die. And it's easy in hindsight to look back and say they should have seen it. Uh, In real time, we may have been in the exact same boat, but just consider some of these passages. Exodus 12, 
the Passover. God was teaching his people through the Passover that in order for death to pass over, a substitute, a sacrifice has to die. The people should have learned that lesson. Leviticus 16, the day of atonement, every year on this day, the people gathered together at the tabernacle and later at the temple and they offered sacrifices and there was a lesson. Sin leads to death and if you're going to live, a substitute has to die. Isaiah 53, one of the clearest prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah, the servant of the Lord who would come and he would bear our sicknesses and our our infirmities. He would carry our sins. He would be crushed for our iniquities. It would be the will of the Lord to crush him, and he would die. Zechariah 12 and 13, both messianic prophecies. One chapter talks about the Messiah being pierced, his side being pierced. The other talks about the shepherd being struck. All of these ideas were floating around in the Old Testament, and they should have reminded the people, yes, God is going to send a Messiah, but that Messiah is going to die. They're struggling to connect those dots. They get the Daniel 7 reference, the Son of Man, and what they're looking for is a political revolution. What they get is a crucifixion. This brings us to the big idea. It's the same big idea we talked about last week because these two stories are connected. Jesus was glorified in his death, resurrection, and ascension. Jesus received glory through these things. Last week, if you have your Bible open, I told you the key verse was John 12, 23. Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. You can circle that word glorified, and you can draw a line down to verse 28. Verse 28 is the key verse in our passage this morning where Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. That idea of Jesus being glorified, the Father being glorified because his hour had come is the theme that links these two stories together. So let's read the passage, and then we'll try to make sense of what the Lord is telling us through John. John 12, beginning in verse 27. Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. 
one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. That's the word of God. Let's pray. Father, this morning our desire is to worship you. It's to honor you and acknowledge you as our creator and our sustainer and our savior and our provider. Father, we thank you this morning for the gospel of John and for the stories of Jesus. We thank you for this short episode from Jesus' life in his last days on earth. Father, give us wisdom this morning to understand truth about the hour for which Jesus came. Father, help us this morning to understand the cross. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the room this morning, we have a small sample size, and so I'm not going to take an actual poll of the four people in, the, in this section in front of me looking at me. If you were here with us in the room, I would ask for a show of hands and some sort of public confession. Since you're not here to either confess or defend yourself, I'm just going to assume all four of you sitting in front of me and all of you joining us at home are guilty of eavesdropping. At some point in your life, you've been guilty of eavesdropping. Maybe as a child, you're trying to eavesdrop on your parents. Maybe as an adult, you're trying to eavesdrop on your children. But at some point, you've been guilty of eavesdropping. Brooke and I this week were flipping channels. We've exhausted all the streaming subscriptions we can find, and we came across The Patriot. There's a scene in The Patriot. We watched this scene where Gabriel Martin is visiting his uh, fiance, this girl that he's going to marry eventually, Anne, and they sew him up in a bundling bag so that he can spend the night in the room with her and the parents don't have to worry. So they sew him up in the bag. They leave the room. Her father is still worried, and so he gets his listening device, a sort of stethoscope of sorts, and leans up against the door, and he's trying to listen. He knows nothing can happen physically, but he's trying to eavesdrop on what they're talking about. Now, most of you have probably never used a stethoscope or some sort of listening device. Some of you may have done that. My guess is if you're a certain age, you have used the old landline phone trick. And there's a picture I'll show you from the Saturday Evening Post. And you can see the boy in the background. He's picked up the landline at just the right time when his mother in the other room picked up the landline. And if you remember having landlines, those wires that ran into our house and a wire ran out of your wall to a phone and you had to pick that thing up to talk, you remember if you picked it up at just the right time, you could eavesdrop. You could listen in on someone else's conversation. And if you held the the speaker or you covered the speaker or maybe you hit the mute button, you could listen to that conversation without someone else knowing that you were actually eavesdropping on them. Maybe you've done this on an airplane. Airplanes are those things we used to get on before the quarantine and they would take us different places around the world. And maybe you're on an airplane and you've got your head phones in or your earbuds in and you're pretending like you're minding your own business but really you're listening to someone beside you or someone behind you eavesdropping on a conversation. Maybe you've done this at a restaurant. Restaurants are those places we used to go eat food before the quarantine and we would sit down and there would be people within six feet of us close enough that you could eat your chips and salsa and if you didn't crunch too loudly you could listen to the conversation at the next table. At some point in your life, you've done this. You have eavesdropped. You've listened in on someone else's conversation. 
here's the beauty of John 12 and the verses we're looking at. We get to eavesdrop on a conversation. And we don't have to be sneaky about it because we're actually invited. Jesus says this conversation between God the Son and God the Father actually took place not for his benefit, but for our benefit. What a remarkable thing to listen in on a Trinitarian conversation. God the Son, in a moment of crisis, crying out and talking to God the Father, and God the Father responding. We get to listen in on this conversation. We get to eavesdrop on this conversation. And as we listen in to this conversation between God the Son and God the Father, we learn several important truths about the cross. That's the question we're going to try and answer this morning. As we're listening, as we're eavesdropping, what do, what do we learn, what do we see about the cross? Here's the first truth. The cross was Jesus' quote, our, and it caused Jesus' soul to be troubled. This was his hour, and as he came to this hour, Jesus says that his soul was troubled. Look at verse 27. He says, now my soul is troubled. We talked about that word a few weeks ago in John 11. John 11, verse 33, Jesus was visiting Lazarus' tomb, and the text says that when he showed up, he was deeply moved in his spirit, and he was greatly troubled. We talked about a few weeks ago, Jesus is now staring death in the face in a very personal way way. He's days away from his own death, and as he has this encounter with death, yes, he's about to raise Lazarus, but he's troubled. It's John 11. Now we're in John 12, and Jesus is talking about his hour. These Greeks have come, and he understands his hour has come, and his soul is troubled. We'll see the same word in John 13. This is Jesus talking with his disciples and he exposes, not fully, but he exposes Judas as a traitor. And it says, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Three times John tells us that Jesus' soul is troubled. John 11, as he's standing at Lazarus's tomb. John 12, the Greeks come and he knows his hour has come. It's his time to die. He's troubled again. John 13, Jesus talks about Judas who will betray him and that will lead to his death. And once again, he's troubled. Troubled, troubled, troubled. Three references. This is not panicked fear. This is a settled realization about what is about to happen. It's not terror like he's trying to run away from what's coming, but it is a settled realization that the cross is coming. In the Gospel of John, as we press on, we will not come in the Gospel of John to the story where Jesus is praying in Gethsemane. We don't read about Jesus sweating drops of blood in the Gospel of John. We don't Read about Jesus praying while the disciples are sleeping in the Gospel of John. We don't read about this struggle in the garden. 
John doesn't tell that part of the story, but he tells part of the story that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't tell, and it's these three references, John 11, John 12, John 13. Jesus is troubled. He's troubled. He's troubled. Maybe a faint way of understanding this is to think back to when you were a child, to a situation where you knew discipline was going to come into your life. I think about uh, when I was a child in grade school and we would get report cards. I used to get a physical report card. It would be in a nice manila folder and the teacher would write your grades for each subject. And then there was a section not just for grades but for behavior. And if you got a check mark under that behavior section, it means you had a problem. There was a deficiency. There was something that needed to be corrected. And one of the areas that I seem to remember getting check marks in from time to time was talks too much in class. The grade part was never that much of an issue for me, but as a young child, I had trouble with that one. And I knew when I had that report card in my hands, I don't need to be worried about 3 o'clock because at 3 o'clock, my mom's going to pick me up, and this is not going to be an issue. What I needed to be worried about was 6 o'clock when my dad came home. And when he would look at the front page and see the grades, those are okay, and then he would flip the report card over and look at the behavior and find the check mark, and that's when you knew there's going to be an issue. And there was a sense of, it's coming. I know what's going to happen. Jesus, as he's troubled, is not terrified It's not irrational fear. It's not that he's trying to run away from anything, but it's a settled realization about what's going to come. Look at the question he poses in verse 27. He says, my soul is troubled. What am I going to say? What would I ask God? My soul is troubled. What is it that I'm going to ask the Father to do? Hypothetical question, am I going to ask the Father to save me from this hour? And his answer is no. This is John's version of Jesus saying, not my will, but your will be done. Yes, he's troubled. No, he's not asking for a pass. Why? It's because of what Jesus says at the end of verse 27, for this purpose I have come. To this hour. What a beautiful statement of the gospel. Why was Jesus born in Bethlehem? Why did Jesus walk on this earth, teaching people, healing people, gathering disciples? What was the purpose in God becoming man? This was it. This is the purpose for which he came. This was the hour for which he came. He's talking about the cross. Jesus didn't come to earth to scold you. He came to save you. Too often in our minds, we have the idea that God is just simply this angry old man pointing a finger at us, telling us how lousy we are. He didn't come, according to John 12, to scold us. He came for this purpose, to this hour, that he would save us. And as that hour draws near, Jesus says his soul is troubled. Secondly, what do we learn about the cross? We learn that the cross resulted in the judgment of the world and the defeat of Satan. 
judgment of the world and the defeat of Satan. There's a few ideas when you look at verse 31, a couple of terms that we just need to be square on before we talk about what Jesus is saying. One is the, the word world. You'll find that word many, many times in the New Testament. Usually, in the Gospel of John, and as it's being used here, John is talking about fallen humanity in rebellion against God. He's not necessarily talking about the dirt on which we walk every day. He's not necessarily talking about the the air molecules that make up our atmosphere. He's talking about the world, fallen humanity in rebellion against God. And then he talks about the ruler of this world, and it's clear from later references in John that he's talking about Satan, that in some sense, Satan has an authority or a rulership over this world. And this is what Jesus is saying in verse 31. He says, my hour has come. The hour for which I've come is the cross. And for this purpose, in this moment, in this hour at the cross, This is the judgment of the world, and this is where the ruler of the world will be cast out. I want to jump down to a later verse in John 12, and I want you to see what Jesus says. And I want you to think with me about how we put these two verses together. Verse 31, Jesus says, this is the judgment of the world. But look what Jesus says in John 12, verse 47. He says, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. You look at those two verses and you say, Jesus, you need to get on point here. You need to read the talking points that we've sent out to you. You need to be on message because in one moment you're saying this is the judgment of the world and in the next you're saying, look, I'm not here to judge the world and we're left wondering which one is it? We're left looking at these verses saying, man, that looks like a contradiction. This is the judgment of the world, verse 31. Verse 47, I'm not here to judge the world. On the face of it, those two verses look contradictory. They're not. What Jesus is saying, you take these verses together, is that he didn't come to scold us, he came to save us. He didn't come for the purpose of judgment, he came in the incarnation for the purpose of salvation. But our salvation comes through judgment. The reason that we can be saved is the fact that on the cross, in this hour for which Jesus came, the wrath of the Father, the anger of the Father was poured out on the Son. God's judgment on the godless rebellion of the world took place at the cross. And Jesus draws a connecting line and he says, because the sin of the world will be judged at the cross, verse 31 the ruler of this world, will be cast out. He's talking about the decisive, not the final, the decisive defeat of Satan. One of the heroes from church history who saw the glory of what Jesus is talking about is Martin Luther. We remember Martin Luther as a lot of things, the father of the Reformation and uh, this monk who converted and sparked a a world-changing movement. One of the things he was was a hymn writer, and he wrote a hymn called A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Look at this verse from Luther's famous hymn. 
He says, though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim. That's the ruler of the world from John 12. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Luther said, look, I know that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion. I know this world is filled with devils who want to undo us and tempt us and destroy us. But we're not afraid. Even though the final defeat of Satan and his forces has not happened yet, the decisive victory has been won, and it was won at the cross. So the cross results in the judgment of the world, in Jesus bearing our sin, in the judgment of God, and the defeat of Satan. Number three, the cross resulted in Jesus drawing all people to himself. Drawing all people to himself. I'm using Jesus' words. John 12, verse 32. Jesus said, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Some Bible scholars say this lifting up is the ascension. I think it's clear that Jesus is talking about the cross. And it's clear because of verse 33. John gives us an an explanation He says he said this to show, not how he would go back to heaven, but he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. It would be a death where he was lifted up from the earth. The same idea is found in John 3 when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and he says to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, do you remember in the Old Testament when they lifted up the serpent on the pole? And if you look to the serpent you lived, Nicodemus, in the end, the Son of Man will be lifted up on a pole. And all who look to him will live. The cross resulted in Jesus drawing all people to himself. How do we understand this drawing? One of the things we're doing this morning, and one of the helpful ways to read your Bible, is to let the Bible interpret the Bible. When you read this statement, Jesus, I'm going to be lifted up, and I'm going to draw all people to myself, you say, has Jesus ever talked about that before? And he has. The Gospel of John, chapter 6, Jesus said several things about this drawing. One of the things he said is, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's straight from the mouth of Jesus. You cannot come to Jesus unless the Father graciously draws you. You don't have the spiritual ability. You're a captive to sin. You're a slave to sin. The Bible says you're dead, spiritually dead in your trespasses and sins. And you cannot come to Jesus unless the Father draws you. Jesus also said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes, I will never cast out. The Father's going to give a people to the Son, and all of them will come. And here's a great promise. If you come to Jesus, you will not be cast out. How many people needlessly wrestle with that question? Will Jesus forgive me? He doesn't know what I've done or how many times I've done it or who I've done it with. You don't know what I think in my heart. You may see a good picture, but you don't know what my heart is like. This is what Jesus is saying. If you come, you will not be cast away. He'll receive you. 
And he says the Father must draw you if you're going to come. And now in John 12, he adds to this idea of drawing, and he says, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Does that mean everyone will be saved? Is that an all without exception? Jesus is going to be crucified and everyone will be drawn to the cross. We know from reading other Bible verses that's not what it means. It's not an all without exception. It's an all without distinction. All people will be drawn, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, rich and poor, male and female, educated and uneducated, Texan and Oklahoman. They're all going to be drawn. Why? Because Jesus was crucified. This is the hour for which he came. How is it today that people will be drawn to faith in Jesus? You get a lot of answers to that. Some people think that an online worship service is the key for how someone will be drawn to faith in Jesus. Some people think a a big event that draws a big crowd is the key to how someone will be drawn to faith in Jesus. Some people think, well, we've got to preach a certain way or we've got to sing a certain way. We've got to structure things a certain way. That's the key to how someone's going to be drawn to faith in Jesus. Jesus himself tells us how it's going to happen. It's through the cross. When he's lifted up, he draws people to himself. When we preach Jesus crucified... People are drawn. That's how the Father draws people. When we go to Kenya, we don't sit down on the front end of a trip to Kenya and say, okay, this is a whole new ball game. We're going to Kenya. What are we going to tell these people? We just go and we tell them about Jesus crucified. When we fill this room with children for a week in the summer at Vacation Bible School, we don't have inner office staff meetings and say, okay, what are we going to tell the kids this year? We've got to make sure we tell them something really exciting. It's got to be really funny, and it's got to be... We just say, look, we've got to tell the kids about Jesus and Jesus crucified. That's how people are drawn to faith. It's not through our programs. It's not through our creativity. It's not through our intelligence. It's through talking about Jesus and Jesus crucified. R.A. Torrey is a hero from church history. Torrey was having discussions about How are we going to draw people to Jesus? And some people were saying to Tori, look, you've got to change your message. You've got to change your method. You've got to be a little bit more with it. Uh, You can't preach that old-timey, Old Testament, uh, first-century stuff. You've got to preach something new, something fresh, something exciting. Tori said this, preach any Christ but a crucified Christ, and you will not draw men for long. You can preach something other than Jesus crucified, and you might be able to draw a crowd. We're not trying to draw a crowd. We're looking for God to draw people to salvation. And if that's what we're looking for, we're looking to preach Jesus and Jesus crucified. One last thought. The cross requires a decision to turn from darkness and to walk in light. There's a decision that is required here. You see this in verse 33 through the end. Uh, Jesus talks about uh, 
this lifting up. He's going to show how he's going to die. And the crowd says, look, verse 34, we've read the law. Sure sounds like the Christ is going to remain forever. We've read Daniel 7. I don't see anybody dying in Daniel 7. How is it that the Son of Man is going to die? How do we understand this? How do we make sense of it? Here's what's interesting. Jesus doesn't answer that question. It's almost as if Jesus says, that question's already been answered. Exodus 12, Leviticus 16, Isaiah 53, Zechariah 12 and 13. That question has been answered in the Old Testament. Instead, Jesus looks at this crowd who has a question, and he simply calls them to decision. You need to decide, Jesus says. The light will be here for a little while longer. Don't waste your opportunity. In the immediate context, what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to die soon. You're not going to be able to look me in the eyeball like you are now. You're not going to be able to hear my voice audibly like you do now. You need to make a decision. You need to believe. That's what Jesus says. In verse 36, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. You know, that's essentially what Jesus said to Nicodemus back in John 3. Nicodemus has got lots of questions for Jesus. He doesn't understand all the things that Jesus is throwing at him. And this is what we read in John 3 verse 19. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. People love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. There's this idea of light and darkness again. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Jesus essentially says that, to this crowd when he says, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Jesus is telling Nicodemus and he's telling the crowd and he's telling you and he's telling me. You have a decision to make about Jesus. You may have questions. You may have doubts. You may not be able to get your arms around the whole thing at this moment in time. But you still need to make a decision about Jesus. Will you believe? Will you not? Will you come to the light? Or will you stay in the dark? Will you fall back on your doubts and questions? Or will you believe and trust in Jesus? Jesus says this, while you have the light, while you have an opportunity... Believe in the light that you may become sons of light. My prayer for us this morning as we look at this short story from Jesus' last days is that God the Father would send God the Spirit to this room and to your living room and that the Spirit of God would do the work of the Father in drawing us to God the Son who died in our place, taking our judgment on the cross. My prayer is that whether you're in this room or you're in your home, that you would make a decision for Jesus today. That you would turn away from 
sin and darkness, and you would turn to the light and you would believe. 